Welcome to the CBIA BizCast. I'm your host, Ali Warshavsky. And today on our podcast, we are speaking with Fran Pastor, CEO and founder of the Women's Business Development Council. And joining her is Rafia Zahir Udin, Vice President for Global Philanthropy with JP Morgan Chase. And this might sound like an interesting combination, but it really all connects because Fran, your first checking account for the Women's Business Development Council was opened at a Chase branch on Prospect Street in Stanford, which is actually right next to where I live. I know it is, and with a $60 deposit. So you have a longstanding history with the bank, and we're here to talk about how it's grown with the $300,000 investment from the bank to support your equity match grant program. So all that to say, welcome to the BizCast to the both of you. Thank you, Allie. Thank you, Allie. Now I'll start with Fran. First of all, for those who do not know, what is the Women's Business Development Council and how long has it been around? Thanks, Allie, for the introduction. Um, and Rafia, great to see you. So Women's Business Development Council is actually celebrating its 25th year in business this year. Um, we started thinking about the Women's Business Development Council in 1995. Um, We worked on our business plan, just like we tell all of our clients to do, and we launched. And our mission is to make sure that women from all walks of life, all socioeconomic backgrounds, have the resources that they need to launch and scale successful businesses so that they can create jobs for themselves and others. And for um, this equity match grant program, you know, why did you create it? So... The Equity Match Grant Program um, was the catalyst behind it were the 60,000 PPP loans that came into the state of Connecticut from the SBA. Um, And we learned about who those PPP loans went to in August, roughly August of 2020. And what we learned was that the majority of those loans went to businesses owned by white people. And the majority of those people were males. And so, Given the, um, the, the demographic of our constituents, our clients at the Women's Business Development Council, which are women with um, businesses with less than three employees, with roughly less than a half a million dollars in revenue annually, um, they don't have on staff a CPA, they probably don't have a lot of money in the bank, um, so they don't have that strong banking relationship. And they were really left out. And so when I saw those numbers, I was really moved to do something about that and reached out to um, our Lieutenant Governor and our Commissioner of Economic Development, David Lehman. And um, they challenged me. They said, you know what? We believe you. We know these people do not need loans. We know that they need grants. What do you think you can raise from the private sector? And then we will match that dollar for dollar. And then we modeled our program, we modeled the grant program off of the Greater Jamaica Economic Development Corporation's longstanding and very successful uh, forgivable loan program. And very quickly, within about six months, we raised over a million dollars and the state matched that. And to date, we've provided um, 98 grants of up to $10,000, totaling $924,000 to women in 52 municipalities around the state of Connecticut. 
That's amazing. And, you know, Rafia, hearing this, I'm sure um, helps you answer this question, but why would JP Morgan Chase decide to be a part of this? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And there's so many ways to answer it. I, I will say that our investment in the Women's Business Development Council is very much aligned with our model of impact, which is supporting inclusive economic opportunity. Here at JP Morgan Chase, um, our work really focuses around four key pillars, which is jobs and skills. So that's workforce development, neighborhood development, which often can be a lot of really innovative interventions around affordable housing, small business, which is where Women's Business Development Council uh, kind of falls in. And then the fourth one, which I see as a, an overlay to the other three is around improving and financial health for, for individuals. Um, and we're putting this model into action through significant investments, um, not just through capital, but using our firm's expertise and data and technology with our global presence. Our work in small business really supports like underserved entrepreneurs globally, and specifically with a focus around minority, veteran, and women-owned small businesses that usually have the most significant challenges and structural barriers in either starting a business, growing their business, and sustainability long-term, which, which are really big, big, big challenges. But we also recognize that you know, small businesses also are um, the backbone in many communities in serving, um, you know, serving their community, creating jobs, creating prosperous neighborhoods. Um, and we want to make sure that our investments are really supporting organizations that are going to meet the needs of small businesses. Um, in 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase Act committed $30 billion to advance racial equity uh, for Black, Hispanic, and Latino communities to really help them support, support them in building wealth. Um, and our $30 billion five-year commitment really looks at the largest drivers of racial wealth divide um, globally. And that includes everything from like affordable housing, small business growth, financial health, um, workforce diversity. Um, so part of this $30 billion commitment, we're, we're using $350 million of that, investing in scaling innovative efforts to expand opportunities to support Black, Hispanic, and women-owned small businesses. Um, our $300,000 investment in Women's Business Development Council is really indicative of their long history in supporting and helping women-owned businesses. I mean, Fran started off talking about how she opened up her first, you know, checking account for the organization at, at a Chase Bank. And, and, and since 1997, they've served, I think, 6,000 businesses and helped, you know, create and or retain 81,000 jobs in Connecticut, which is really significant. And to that end, we realize that they're, they're really moving the needle forward in serving women-owned businesses in the state. And part of what why our partnership here is unique also is we realize that philanthropy itself is not gonna solve the greater challenges um, faced by small businesses and particularly women-owned small businesses. And, you know, the state's commitment in supporting a match 
that's made through the private sector is really, really critical because it's, that's the kind of systems level change that we are really focused on at the foundation. So really coupling our partnerships with the public sector, making sure that we're moving the needle forward, both in terms of the right policy and the right investments that are needed. And that's exactly what we've been discussing today and uh, for the past few, because we're heading into the legislative session. It starts today, and one of the things that CBIA is advocating for is that partnership between public and private, because it can just move the state forward so much and really grow um, the pri the private sector with public sector funds and vice versa. Um, so we will see what happens in the next 100 days or so. And Rafia, you mentioned, and Fran, you did as well about creating or using these grants for more diverse populations and innovative businesses. So Fran, can you give me an example of past grant recipients and what they use the money for? Yes, I can. Um, and I want to say that um, those first three rounds of grants that we made, we had um, a goal of focusing on um, women um, of color and minorities. And we achieved that goal with 30% of our grants going to um, women of color and other minorities. And that for us is a really important piece of what we're doing because we believe, we always have believed in inclusivity and to be able to align our objectives with that of our investors is really important to us. Another important um, thing to mention is that the state funds, uh, the request was do what you can to make an investment in distressed communities. And we achieved that goal as well with 20% of our grants going into distressed communities. So the point about public-private partnerships is really important. I, this administration, the Lamont administration, is very, very committed to public-private partnerships because they work. And I think we have evidence of the past 25 years of how that has worked. Um, so you asked for a few examples, right? So we have had women from 52 communities around the state, um, from Portland, Connecticut, to women who were making silicone masks, right, to um, a coffee shop in Stanford and everything in between. One of my favorites is a occupational therapist who used the $10,000 to buy a mobile bus so she could get to her clients because the demand for her music therapy um, is so great and the results are so good. Um, and she simply couldn't reach all of the people from around the state that needed her help from small children to um, adults with Alzheimer's. So that, that's one of my favorites. Another one is a coffee shop. Um, I forget what town it's in, but the coffee shop employs young people with disabilities. Oh, it's a for-profit it? business, but she employs people with disabilities. Do you know of it? Yeah, I think it's in uh, Greenwich, the Gregory's, I believe, it, it possibly. I um, think that might be it. I can't, it's terrible. I mean, I can't remember the names of all of them off the top of my head. The Nest, I believe it's The Nest. Okay, okay. so it's great to hear another one. Um, I'm sure with all the grants you're giving out, it's it's great that you can't remember them, which yeah. means you're getting, <laughs> uh, you know, you're helping out a lot, but that bus sounds very cool and unique and innovative, which you said. Very much. Before. And, um, and that's, sorry. Oh, no, you go, you go. Thank you, sorry. No, I wanted to say that the, the grants are not for general operating, right? Our goal was to get these um, entrepreneurs to think a little outside the box and pivot. 
we want to make sure that they have the thinking and the ability to pivot and be nimble, not only to survive this, this pandemic, but to thrive after the pandemic. And so we're trying to teach them the skills that sometimes get taught in business school, um, which is you need to pivot. So how do you diversify your product line to meet the changing need? What new markets can you access that are going to help you increase your distribution levels? And so, you know, this is, this is small business. This is main street business. And I'm really excited about this program and so grateful um, to J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, uh, Rafia, how does it make you feel to hear that some of the money um, your company is providing is going to something like a, a occupational therapy bus or a coffee shop that is employing people with special needs? I mean, you know, we have one, we're just proud, right, that we're able to support such a diverse portfolio of small business owners. Um, but at the same time, I think the other piece about what Fran really talked about in terms of pivoting is so crucial during this time because so many small businesses have had to figure out how do we think about diversifying our products, diversifying our services, and how do we reach more people, right? And I, I think those those opportunities where you can actually support the technical assistance that small businesses need to consider, you know, diversification in a lot of different ways, also in, the, in terms of whom you're hiring, shows the kind of both innovative use of philanthropic dollars, but also supporting small businesses that maybe wouldn't have access to COPS capital if it were to be through, you know, federal or state dollars that are often very difficult and challenging to access. And I have some statistics that, Fran, I'm sure you're well aware of, but for anyone listening, um, you, you know, among the recipients from the first two rounds, 71% of businesses have increased their revenue since receiving the grant. So that's a pretty big deal. And then 56 increased their profits, 44 added to their staff or created jobs. And then that's 76 new jobs across 23 companies. I mean, that is some pretty impressive growth. It, it is. Thank you for bringing that up, Allie. And I'll tell you, one of the things that we are most, most proud of, and something that many organizations struggle with, is being able to come up with those statistics, right? Those economic outcome statistics. They're not outputs. It's not the number of people that came through our doors. It's here are the number of people that came through our doors. Here's what they told us they were going to do with that money. And we have followed up with them at three and six month intervals and will continue to do so um, to make sure that we continue to be, that WBDC continues to be a good steward of both public and private funds. We want to make sure that we inform the people who are investing in us, the companies who are investing in us, the legislators and, our, and, and you, a, a Connecticut taxpayer, what are we doing with your money and how is that improving your community, your local economy? And so we have two and a half full-time people that are focused on what we call client engagement and outcomes, right? So they're staying, they're cultivating relationships. We have a community at WBBC. It's not a revolving door. And we are able to cultivate those relationships and therefore those relationships then um, allow people to have trust 
in providing us with the information that we're looking for so we can tell you about these great um, strides that they're making in their business and in our state. I just want to just, uh, you know, put an underline around what Fran just said, because those outcomes are really, really impressive for a program that's been around for a year. I mean, it's very hard to think about how you look at this type of work and think about what is actionable um, in this space outside of outputs. And that, I think that's super impressive. Thank now, you. You're both women in business. What is the state of women in business right now from a personal perspective? And then also from Fran, more of a, you know, Connecticut perspective, what is it like to be a woman in business? Is it more, um, it's, I mean, from all the research and statistics we've seen on our end, it's a little bit tougher to reenter the workforce as a woman after this pandemic, because a lot of women became the teachers in the home or the primary caretakers when their daycares were closed. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, Robbie? I, yeah I would say the pandemic has, you know, no doubt been very challenging for women, and especially working women. And I think there's so many complexities to take into account, like age, race, education, family, caretaking responsibilities, um, which I think if you compound that to a, a woman that owns a business is just significantly more challenging because owning a business in itself requires a lot of time and energy and resources. And I would say that it's, it's hard to sort of say what the the impact is because so much of this space is emerging and there's a lot of research being done specifically at this time around reports and data collection to better understand what the impact on the workforce is, not just nationally with women that have had you know, to step away and, um, and from the workforce and then those that are trying to re-enter as you know, maybe they have less caretaking responsibilities, maybe their, their child school schedule is a little bit more predictable than it has been. Um, but I think that there's some emerging themes to think about if you look at women, uh, women-owned businesses, for sure. Um, I think a poll conducted by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in 2020 surveyed about like 500 small businesses, small business owners in the United States and found that Across the board, women-owned businesses expected decreases in their annual revenue projections, their business investments, and you know, sort of hiring and staffing compared to male-owned businesses. Um, and that survey found that the number of female-owned business owners who scored their businesses as you know somewhat or very good dropped as a result of the pandemic from like 60% in January. To, um, in January 2020 to 47% in July 2020, when we were kind of in the thick of the pandemic. I think it's also important to think about, and I think Fran can speak to this, especially um, uh, in relation to Connecticut, is like the industries and sectors that women-owned businesses represent. You know, often it's going to be like food services, retail, personal care services, which I think suffered significantly as a result of the um, of the pandemic. And those were the sectors that were initially, uh, you know, kind of shut down in the initial months when we went into lockdown in several states. And, and, you know, that's true for Connecticut as well. 
I think something that's interesting and really kind of puts in the through line around um, thinking about how do you operate in this new environment because we're still in it. And it's hard to say when we'll ever get out of it at this point um, is, you know, the effects that it's really having on women and women-owned businesses and how do you survive um, in the current business environment. And sort of alluding to kind of what, what Fran really sort of touched upon is like really creating the acumen around like how do you pivot your business during this time. Um, Babson's College um, did a really interesting study around a sample study around women-owned small businesses to better understand how they've adapted as a result of the pandemic. And an emerging theme that really came across was their agility to pivot their business model to provide a new product or a service that could be delivered with social distance requirements in place. And I think a really great example of that is one of um, the Women's Business Development Council grant recipients Layla Dam, who owns the Lorca coffee, coffee Bar, she actually went through a complete renovation of her coffee space right before the pandemic and then had to shut down completely as a result when, you know, a lot of the local economies went into, you know, quarantine and stay-at-home orders, you know, and part of how she's been able to recover and stay afloat has been sort of one opening up curbside delivery when she was able to offering more specialty packaged goods, uh, you know, and she used her WDC grant, um, BDC grant to, to invest in resources to support her coffee bar uh, and, you know, purchasing equipment, which is sort of, you know, a sandwich oven. And that's kind of been the most profitable item that's been on their, uh, on their menu and what they offer since purchasing that that piece of equipment so that's that's really a, one of the one of the examples in Connecticut that we can draw upon around how do you think about pivoting your business model pivoting your services um, to be able to kind of withstand what's what's going on because it's hard to tell with with the current climate of you know are we indoors are we not indoors are we wearing masks are we not um, and I think that's that's a really great example of how how one of the uh, grant recipients has, has used the funds and really used it in a, in a really creative way. Rafi, I go there when I work from home. I ah. gone over to Lorca all the time. I love it. And um, I certainly witnessed them pivot um, a bunch of times and I, and, and especially with staffing issues and, and the changes they've had to make uh, during the Omicron um, uh, variant when it took uh, its toll on Connecticut if really just a few weeks ago and I really applaud the way that they got through it because it, it, it does make downtown Stanford feel more like home to have that little coffee shop and uh, can't complain about the sandwiches either so <laughs> than that but, but Fran um, you know what needs to change in Connecticut to make it a better place for uh, women to do business? Well, you know, I think right now it's it's really it's tough to say. I mean, it really is tough to say because so much has happened um, through through the state's administration, through the Lamont administration, through DECD. Um, I think what I'd like to see is what I believe we're going to see a little more of as the ARPA funds come into the state and start to get distri distributed is a focus on helping women of color 
Um, and what we as, as Caucasian, as what I can do as a white woman to support my sisters and to help them access the resources that they need. You know, we, we know that in December of 20, of December of 20, um, you know, 500,000 of the jobs that were lost, there was a very big number of jobs that were lost. I think it was 500,000 jobs. And we know based on studies that 95% of them were women. And we know that most of those women were women of color. And we know that most of those women of color were frontline workers, right? They were the cashiers, they were the Uber drivers, they were the, you know, they'd make your coffee at Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, they were healthcare workers. And those were the people that were suffering the most. They lost their childcare, they had to take care of their elderly parents, they couldn't, they lost their jobs. We need to make a priority out of helping our sisters and making sure that they have the educational resources that they need and the community resources that they need, the wraparound services that they need. And that's why one of our main objectives with our grant programs, by the way, we also have a childcare grant program where 57% of the grant recipients of that program were women of color. Uh, because who operates childcare facilities? You know, a lot of the at-home daycare centers are um, Black and Latinx women. And so I really applaud our administration for making, um, creating the Governor's Council on Women and Girls, for the parity partnership that the Lieutenant Governor is responsible for. Because I think if we really want to achieve parity in the workplace, in government, in society, we need to not only engage women, 50% of the population, but we need to engage all women. We need to make sure that it's inclusive. And so I think with the priority on making sure that funds that we're talking about here today are inclusive, we're taking a step in the right direction. But of course, there's so much more to be done. Is there anything you're specifically going to testify or fight for in this legislative session, Fran? Um, I'm anxious for the session to, well, I, we got started today, right? So I'm anxious for it to start. And I have heard from some legislators about, you know, what it is that you want to focus on. What do you think that women need? So I'm just beginning to have those conversations. Um, and I'm looking forward to speaking to Chris in a couple of days as well, to weigh in with him as well. Um, but by and large, I think that this legislature, um, I think it has more women in it than ever before. I think we have more positions, women in positions of leadership and constitutional roles in our state. Um, we have a female mayor in Stanford that I'm really happy about, um, our first ever female mayor in the city. And I think we need more people to be, again, to have a seat at the table. And I think that's how real change happens. Um, and, and we need to have allies. And so if we could have allies in this legislature that recognize the things we just talked about and they could make change happen. Um, I think Connecticut can continue to be a leader in spaces that other states have not um, addressed. Well, Rafia, Fran, thank you so much for coming on the BizCast, explaining this partnership and really breaking down more than the dollar amount, but what it can do for uh, 
a lot of communities in Connecticut and hopefully we'll be following up with you guys soon to hear some more success stories. Well, thank you for listening to this week's BizCast. You can listen and subscribe to our BizCast on Apple, uh, YouTube, and for more episodes, you can also head over to CBIA.com.